It is a beautiful August 23rd. It is Friday, and this is Business Casual. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Tyler, you're back. I'm back. We missed you. I missed being here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest about that. Really? I, I was uh, exploring the world in the uh, beautiful state of Kentucky, Daniel. You know, uh, we were doing uh, Market Scale Mornings yesterday, and I just got so excited to be able to drop big-ass fans live <laughs> on air, and now I'm getting to do it again. Exactly. Because you were out there filming with that company. Um, any sneak peeks you can give our audience for the kind of content you were getting out of there? Got a beautiful look at how they... First of all, assemble the fans there, but more importantly, what kind of sets them apart as like the preeminent name in gigantic fans, basically. Yeah. High-velocity, low-speed fans is what they call them. Huh. Um, and so it's a fascinating look at how they've kind of grown to be the uh, gargantuan brand that they are and why they've kind of set themselves apart and what... Um, it's so appealing for them about being an American-made company. They are based there in Lexington, Kentucky, and, uh, yeah, have all of their operations there. And uh, we got to visit their main manufacturing plant. It was awesome. So all of that's going to be in a video coming out shortly. Amazing. And, Tyler, it's also your birthday. Oh, it is. I was hoping we'd avoid that. Well, I'll, I'll wait on singing <laughs> happy birthday till the closeout. Okay, thank you. Thank <laughs> You're you. welcome. I'll, I'll save you the pain. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, as a, as a birthday present to me, the Dow opened up 49 <laughs> points today. Uh, the NASDAQ opened down 28 points, so clearly not celebrating my birthday. The price of oil is at $53.55 as we speak right now. That's down 3.5% from yesterday. So just uh, an interesting look at the markets. On this day in history, Daniel, aside from it being my birthday... In 1993, the Dow Jones Index reached a record high of 3,638 points. That sounds high. It sounds high, but then you consider that today it's at 26,252 <laughs> points. So just kind of showing just a, a little bit just over the course of, what, 26 years, how much things can change. Yeah, so, that stock market. It's, uh, well, it's pretty volatile. Let's hope it stays up. <laughs> I think everyone would like it to not crash and I know. burn. We've been hearing a lot about an R word, a recession oh. word. So uh, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but we won't get into <laughs> that today. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up on the show, Daniel. We do. Uh, last week, we said we were going to be chatting about social-emotional learning. This week, we're actually chatting about social-emotional learning. We've got a Harvard professor on to give us a, some, some takes on social-emotional learning in the classroom. We're also going to be chatting used clothes in retail stores. You know, I'd seen the stories about this. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. It's going to be very I'm, cool. I'm interested to talk about it. Very sure. solid convo. And we're also going to be chatting healthcare, cybersecurity training, and the importance of it, and throw out some stats for that. But before we get into all that, we've actually got a special guest on the podcast this morning. We're not alone in the studio. We're not alone. There's it's, a third. <laughs> oh. uh, so we're going to be chatting with Lauren Farrell. She's our Senior Director of Marketing here at MarketScale. And we're bringing her on Business Casual to talk a little bit about the marketing behind seasonality. Because as we push into the fall, we're starting to see a lot of those pumpkins. We're starting to see the fall leaves, the reds and the oranges. And there's a business behind that. And Lauren's here to pull the curtain back a little bit. So Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Ooh. Welcome to the radio show. How are you doing? <laughs> Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Lauren, when we are talking seasonality, how would you define it? 
and uh, I know there are some different types of seasonality. So I guess how would you classify them? What are the differences? Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely some different types. And looking at it, there's the physical weather season. Um, with those, your spring, summer, right. fall, right. pumpkin season. Um, and with that kind of the holiday seasons that encompass those. But then secondarily, there's the individual business seasons that exist in parallel to those. So for example, you have um, a company that makes robotic pool cleaners. You know, their big season is summer which right. exists in parallel to that weather season. But ultimately, you know, maybe they have some specials um, in their sales around the holidays. Um, so their marketing exists in parallel to what their end user uh, needs and kind of those consumer behaviors, even if they're a B2B company. Um, and that kind of goes across everything from baseball to um, manufacturing. Sure. There's going to be different times of the year um, that a business finds larger successes, uh, and it's important that they also are cognizant of those things going on in the world as well. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you've got both kind of the social side of seasonality and the literal side that impacts the food we eat, the weather, and and, uh, a lot of the seasonality behind Food products, I think, is like the the thing that most people are familiar with. You've Absolutely. got your hat, chili season, your mm-hmm. pumpkin season, um, your yeah. Cadbury chocolate egg season. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it it all it all kind of cycles, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I I think it's really cool to unpack the impact that seasonality can have on not only B two C marketing but B two B marketing as well. Um, what are some of the trends that you see and how do you see seasonality actually impacting those companies? Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things, it's kind of perfect timing that we're talking about this, is uh, Forrester just released a report um, talking about how B2B and B2C marketing is basically non-existent. There's not as much differentiation between the two. Hmm. Basically, customer expectations, desire for a data-driven decision-making um, is changing the decision-making process for all buyers. So whether they're buying for their business or they're buying as an individual consumer, um, people are doing research. Um, they want to be anonymous. They don't want to be, you know, they want to go ahead and do their research before going into the buying process. So that goes right. from buying an iPhone to a business, you know, deciding on a vendor for their company. Um, so seasonality definitely plays along with that in that marketing needs to not be boring. Yeah. Um, and that goes across B2B and B2C. So companies being cognizant of what people, their potential buyers, whether it's a business or a consumer, you know, school being out, summer vacations, um, you know, we're talking about pumpkin and all of that, is having a voice that speaks to those things going on in everyone's lives. Um, And that goes across both, you know, kind of what we've always seen as two different verticals of marketing of B2B and B2C. People don't want that anymore. They want to be spoken to um, and they want, you know, we want authenticity in those brand voices. It shouldn't be something just to fit with the storyline. But we definitely as a mark as marketers yeah um it's important to kind of be cognizant of what's happening what time of the year we're in that's a really good point and i think maybe sometimes some of the more um creative marketing i've seen has actually come in off seasons right where uh it's it's not necessarily it's obvious during the summertime that it's baseball season you have promotions around you know a, a baseball team and that sort of thing but sometimes staying at the forefront of people's mind even in an off season or in a season where your product might not necessarily like you said about pool cleaners yeah. uh, might not necessarily be as um i guess forefront in people's mind 
can also be uh, a creative and fun time to maybe stretch your legs and see what kind of things you can come up with uh, that still engages the consumer, engages other businesses and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to stay top of mind. And, um, you know, if it's not your season or you're not in season, mm. um, you know, baseball is a great example. You know, teams have these fan fest guests when they are. They're in the winter because yeah, they don't have yeah. anything else going on. But that's the time of year when tickets go on sale because um, and things open to businesses, whether they're buying sweets or anything else, because that's a time where they don't have as much going on. But guess what? When do people buy a lot around the holidays, whether you're a mm-hmm. business or you're a consumer? Um, it's the end of the fiscal year for a lot of companies. So making sure to pay attention to those kind of um, signs is really important for a company. So to kind of wrap up our thoughts here, what would you say makes a seasonal rollout a worthy investment? And when, as a company, should you decide to make that leap into basically temporary signage, temporary advertising and marketing and product lines that will eventually kind of go out of season? Yeah, I think it's important to have awareness of that and be authentic to your brand still, not just, you know, push something out. A great example of that is... um, We'll talk about pumpkins again, but um, pumpkin beers, um, you know, that's become all the craze over the past probably five to 10 years. But what you've seen is that these um, beer companies and distributors are pushing up the time. There's such demand that guess what? Those pumpkin beers are being released in July. Well, as a consumer, you know, do consumers really want to be buying pumpkin beer when it's 100 degrees out? Right. You know, it doesn't really fit the seasonality anymore, but they're trying to be first to market. Um, and does that kind of get away from that authenticity? And, you know, distributors want that, too, because they want to get that product out. Um, so it's really important to, you know, kind of balance that timely seasonality and, you know, capturing your audience, but also kind of staying true to not becoming not recognize just because you're missing the timing mm-hmm. because you just want to be first and you want to be out there. Um, mm-hmm. You really need to play, you know, we know we don't understand a buyer's journey anymore. So you want to be there in the now when their now is. Um, and it's really important to understand people. I love that. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on Markets. Oh, no, this is a Market Scale Mornings. My brain's in another place, Tyler. This is business casual. This is business thing. casual. What planet are we on? <laughs> But Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on Business Casual. It's always a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me, and happy birthday, Tyler. Thank Woo! you so much. Oh, my gosh. It's so, uh, so humbled. Oh it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's overwhelming just a little bit, but thank you. Oh, man. All right, T. We're chatting healthcare cybersecurity now. Talk to me about this because this is an this is an interesting thing because healthcare records are obviously important. Like there are HIPAA laws protecting healthcare records and, and that sort of thing, but it feels like nowadays more and more professions are having to be experts in tech as well yeah. right when that's not necessarily what the primary training for that particular job is so has that become an issue in in healthcare is that cybersecurity is just overlooked because everybody else there is trained to be doing something very very important but something right. else exactly well i think a lot of it comes back down to the tools that people are using uh, you know healthcare professionals use um, a computer, <laughs> duh. They do a lot sure. of data input, uh, data entry, and analysis as well. And naturally, that comes with some potential cybersecurity risks. Mm-hmm. So there's a new report that came out from antivirus company Kaspersky. I always feel like I'm saying that name wrong. I always thought it was Kaspersky, but I'm pretty sure it's Kaspersky. I think you're probably right. And uh, it, they partnered with a research firm called Opinion Matter. They surveyed about... 
1,750 healthcare employees. Mm-hmm. And in that survey, 32% of them said they'd never received any training on cybersecurity. Wow. Which is a pretty staggering number when you think about it because those physicians, like I said, are using networks that are connected to sensitive information. Sure. Um, as of January 2019, more than 200 healthcare organizations were affected by a cybersecurity incident. Uh, and they classified those cybersecurity incidents as ones that affected more than 500 patients. Wow. So it wasn't like, you know, a measly little hack. It was something that really affected patient data. And the average healthcare organization spent about $1.4 million to recover from a cyber attack. That's that's the average each. So we can obviously see it's a pressing issue. Mm-hmm. It's not something that should be taken lightly. But for some reason... We're not seeing physicians trained or capable of dealing with these issues. And we've got um, a bite here with Rob uh, Cataldo, I believe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Rob Cataldo. He's the VP of Enterprise Sales for Kaspersky. And uh, he broke down why training and awareness of IT devices are so important to this issue. Cybersecurity training is an area where healthcare organizations can dramatically improve their employees' ability to be the single most effective solution against mitigating threats posed to patient data. Concerning device awareness, since many of the IT systems and devices that are being used uh, do have patient data stored on them, it's incredibly important that healthcare practitioners understand how their devices are being protected. Our survey showed that 40% of healthcare employees that were surveyed didn't know how their IT uh, devices were being protected. Which is staggering, right? I mean, you think almost half of physicians didn't really understand the network they were working on. And it doesn't sound like there's a lot of focused training around this. And I I didn't really find a lot of information for why that is. Like, Mm -hmm. it's obviously not malicious. It's not like... We don't think this is valuable. Right. My my brain goes to it being a lack of resources and a a general ignorance around how impactful those little things are. Mm-hmm. The networks that you work on, how you handle the data, how you input the data, how you save documents and transfer files and honestly being aware of like phishing emails and stuff Absolutely. on a secure uh, healthcare network all of those things are important, and yet they're not being communicated. Yeah, and I think that uh, I think we've seen in a lot of different industries that uh, everyone wants to digitize, everyone wants to be up on the latest tech and that sort of thing, but there's not always the steps taken to get there safely, responsibly, and, and that sort of thing. So healthcare industry is not alone in that necessarily, just looking and seeing technology and saying, hey, yeah, we want that. That's going to make our lives easier in a lot of ways, and kind of going point A to point you know, E without going B, C, D, you know, in the right. middle. Uh, and, and so th- that's, you You learn that on the back end after mistakes are made, you do what you can and it's going to be expensive to go back and correct that. But if companies can begin to correct that now, they'll prevent larger mistakes in the future. Right. And, you know, I, I really think the ones that need to be trained are the physicians and the RNs mm-hmm. uh, because they're on the front lines of this. And it's not necessarily that the, um, IT teams need better training, which, I mean, I it wouldn't hurt, obviously, to have sure. uh, IT teams that fully comprehend what they're working with, which I'm sure they are trained on this. But I think where we really need to focus that training is on the physicians 
the nurses, the ones that are taking that information, inputting it, sending out the emails, the secretaries even at the front desk mm-hmm. of these healthcare organizations. It's all really, really crucial that they understand how to deal with uh, that information and how to handle it safely. So, yeah, we're just going to have to keep an eye out to see um, if training increases. I'd like to do another segment on this in the future, actually talking to someone about what training looks like in this setting and how to make it happen in an efficient way. Um, but, yeah. That's that. That is that. That is that. All right. We're going to take a quick 30-second break, and when we come back, we're chatting social-emotional learning. Super exciting stuff. Are you tired of all job postings looking the same and want to find a way to help yours stand out? Get yourself a market-scale JobCast. JobCasts are a compelling piece of recruitment content that differentiate your job post above all the others. What is a JobCast, you might ask? They're a short podcast that gets to the heart of what makes your company unique and stand out in a world full of copycats and cheap knockoffs. Once produced, the JobCast can be added to your job posting and put on your website. Stop getting lost in the job board shuffle and start standing out with a market-scale JobCast. All right, Tyler. So I ran into an article um, about a week or so ago that cited a Dr. Karen Ephraim. She's the president of the Education Liberty Watch organization, which is an organization that takes a very kind of limited gov, pro-parental rights approach to education. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Ephraim was making a case against social-emotional learning in the classroom. She was calling it a fad and that the core of social-emotional learning should remain at home rather than the classroom. It was a pretty hot take. Um, and just to clarify for everyone, social-emotional learning, as defined by the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, defined it as the process through which children and adults understand and manage emotions, set and achieve positive goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make responsible decisions. So she was saying bringing that into a curriculum format into the classroom mm-hmm. was a fad, it's not working, and it's a waste of time. So, hot take. I wanted some more insight on that, so I'd like to welcome Stephanie M. Jones. She's a professor of education at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. So, Stephanie, after reading over this, um, looking at what Dr. Karen Ephraim said, what are your initial thoughts on her take here? Uh, Well, (laughs) my first thought is it's really not faddish. Social-emotional learning is the bread and butter of good teaching. So... Uh, when you think about what a child or a young person needs to do to be successful in the classroom, they need to be able to kind of focus their thinking, shift their attention to capture what's being offered in the classroom from the teacher. They need to be able to manage their behavior to uh, to uh, capture the information that the teachers are sharing. They need to have positive relationships with people, and they need to manage their feelings. So, If you think about what a learner needs to do to access the information in the classroom, it's all these kinds of things. And those are what social-emotional learning is. And what are your thoughts on the place of social-emotional learning in the classroom versus the home? And how do they, maybe do you think, work together to, to really propagate a a solid curriculum of empathy and positive relationships? Well, so uh, social-emotional skills and competencies are important everywhere, and uh, they absolutely support learning, and they are 
fostered through relationships at home, through experiences with uh, parents and other important adults, and they are fostered through experiences in school with important school adults. So uh, every one of those settings is an opportunity to learn these skills and competencies, to see adults model them, to learn from adults who have information about them and to practice them. So so I don't really see it as something that sits in one setting or another because it's really about uh, kind of a human characteristic that it crosses all of these different settings. And kind of what I've personally um, built a, an opinion around is that when you look at some of the access that students have to um, to a, a solid, uh, I guess, focused, emotionally based learning platform, that's kind of a convoluted mm-hmm. way of saying like like when when you look at what sort of resources they have available to them, they don't always have you know, a a stable family life at home. They don't always have access to speak to someone or learn from someone in an emotionally enriching way at home. And so I think that's important to remember, too, is that sometimes they're only getting that kind of positive exposure at school with their teachers. Um, And I think that's important to remember as we think about the difference in place or like where should we be teaching kids about social emotional learning in the home or the classroom? So uh, I completely agree. There's a huge uh, variety of, of individual experience. So kids have uh, um, access to um, resources or don't. And and um, what we have to think about is really uh, what do different adults have to offer in different settings. Some kids may not um, have access to social, emotional supports at home, but they really can get them at school. But also, you know, school adults and home adults offer all sorts of different things. And those settings are so different that kids have an opportunity to learn different things in different places. And so it's it's not something um, that just doesn't exist in school and only exists at home. That doesn't, that doesn't really make, make any sense because it's about uh, attention and behavior and emotions, and that's happening all the time. It's also happening out in communities and in uh, sports teams and out of school time activities. So it's really relevant everywhere. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about social emotional learning is that it's also been um, relatively commoditized as of late. There are a lot of businesses, uh, specifically education technology companies, that are are seeing this as a fruitful endeavor. Um, they they see business around it as booming, and so they want to slice. They want to try their hand at developing um, some sort of social-emotional learning game or platform or curriculum. Have you seen this be a general benefit or negative or somewhere in the middle uh, to the overall longevity and success of social-emotional learning? Well, so I guess a couple of things about that. One is that um, we have tons of evidence that, uh, programs, strategies, practices that target social-emotional skills and competencies in schools are effective. So we have uh, correlational studies that tell us about why these skills are important. We have um, randomized controlled trials of programs that are implemented in schools that tell us what we can expect when we actually target these skills and competencies directly. And then we have like studies of studies that give us a sense of overall what's the impact of uh, programs that target these kinds of skills. 
both in the social, emotional, and behavioral areas, but also in academic outcomes. And one of the most uh, kind of key findings of the last decade is that when you implement a program in social, emotional learning, uh, and this is true of many different types of those programs, you can expect to see a boost in social, emotional skills, but also in academic outcomes, even if they are not the direct target of the program. So that's led, as you suggest, a lot of folks to get interested in this area and to see about uh, how they might build, design um, programs, approaches, whether they are designed for in the classroom and in person or online. And there's lots of people getting involved. I think the thing to remember is that we want to stick closely to the evidence. So when we're designing something for the classroom, whether it's a, a product that, that happens online or something that happens in the classroom, we have to use what we already know about what's effective to design it so we can expect it to be effective. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt to always keep the data handy and... I think that's what we see across all industries is people are putting that emphasis on the numbers, on the research, and using that as yeah. a basis to inform larger decisions. And so it, it's it's encouraging to see that that is the basis for pushing social-emotional learning forward. Um, and I'm interested in seeing how it continues to develop in tangible ways as it gets integrated into more curriculums uh, across the nation. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. Again, we were chatting with Stephanie M. Jones, professor of education at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. We'll chat again soon. Okay. Thanks. All right, T. We are going to real quick toss out the Jeffrey Short short list because... You gotta have the short list. Yeah, you gotta have the short list. Wow, hold on, I, I gotta turn that back. Ba- yeah, I gotta turn that bad boy up. <laughs> we gotta let people hear that. So, real quick, y'all, we want to give you the Jeffrey Short short list. Here we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Short, and this is the B2B short list for Friday, August 23rd. Retail chain Target beat its target in its earnings report this week, and that could signal good news for retailers nationwide. Largely driving the success is shipped the same-day delivery company that Target acquired in late 2017. Here's what Target COO John Mulligan said in the company's Q2 earnings conference call this week. Our same-day options are growing much faster than our digital sales. Specifically, combined sales for in-store pickup, drive-up, and shipped have more than doubled over the last year, accounting for nearly three-quarters of Target's 34% digital comp in the second quarter. Target rolled out a dedicated section of its website for same-day delivery orders this summer, making it more accessible for customers. Tech is also coming to the financial sector, but it isn't bringing you a Target gift card. Automation stands to move workers into different roles in the near future. Bloomberg reporter Shelley Hagen broke down which roles might be more in demand for humans going forward. She said, and I quote, There are optimists that are saying there will be many finance jobs added due to automation and this technology. LinkedIn says that job postings in the finance industry that list skill sets with data science have jumped 60% in the past 12 months. So there's a lot of demand for people who can do both finance and tech, end quote. In a report last year, PricewaterhouseCoopers said that as many as one-third of financial service jobs could be automated in the next 15 years. That's what's going on in the world of B2B this morning. I'm MarketScale Digital Editor Jeff Short. I always got to love Jeff Short's 
interesting takes and mm-hmm. stories. He always picks the best ones. He does pick the good ones. And I, I was really into that uh, that Target story specifically with Shipped. And I think that's really fascinating. And we're kind of looking at an interesting landscape for, for retail. We're constantly talking about the evolving landscape for retail. And we're actually starting to see that in a different way with JCPenney and Macy's kind of getting into the used clothing yeah. uh, realm, which is which is really fascinating to me. When I first saw this, I thought, really? Like, a, is, is that something that's really going to happen? I, I, I don't know. How do you feel about this? I mean, I personally love thrifting. It's one of my favorite ways to buy clothes. That and Urban Outfitters. Um, I, I don't disagree, but does yeah. it not devalue kind of the Macy's JCPenney brand? Or has that already been so thoroughly devalued by just the way that the market has gone and their response to kind of the online revolution. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. I I would say at this point, um, Macy's and JCPenney are probably feeling the pressure of having to readjust their physical brick-and-mortar space. Mm -hmm. Like when we look at Toys R Us, a totally different example, but they had giant warehouse-level stores. They filed for bankruptcy. Now they're back and they're reopening and they're like baby stores, tiny stores. And they're refocusing their entire outlook on how to do brick and mortar retail. Um, And I feel like JCPenney and Macy's are probably feeling the same stress of having malls, giant warehouse size stores where they're not probably seeing a lot of sales. So to give some context to this, JCPenney and Macy's are partnering with ThreadUp which is a used clothing store company, to bring used clothing in-store in hopes to encourage the purchasing of new merch as well. So you Interesting. you come in for the bargain, you leave hopefully with you know some new Tommy Hilfiger. Um, <laughs> and the resale market is expected to grow from last year's $24 billion to $51 billion by 2023. Um, they're not alone. Neiman Marcus just purchased a stake in a retail excuse me, in a resale site called Fashion Pile, which allows stores to sell clothes back so customers can come and sell their clothes, not buy their clothes. But still, you're seeing a lot of these big retailers step into the used clothes market, which is interesting and I feel like is motivated by this ethic like conversation behind fast fashion. Okay. Um, Are are you being wasteful by just throwing out clothes when they're no longer fashionable or when you no longer want them or need them? And also the production of clothes. Like you see your Zara's and and your, I guess, Forever 21's. Like Mm -hmm. their big thing is kind of looking at the designer brands, seeing a cool look, taking it and producing something that is more accessible, a little cheaper. Um, and faster to market because they want to stay on top of the designer trends but at an accessible price. Yeah. And that creates um, a lot of literal waste. For example, the apparel and footwear industries account for 8% of global climate impact mm-hmm. across the board, which is higher than all international airline flights and maritime shipping trips combined. Wow. So the retail industry has a big carbon footprint. And I think... This is just another example of consumers being aware of those things and Mm -hmm. probably demanding them from companies. And so I I can see this being a motivator for JCPenney and Macy's to want to break into, I don't know, probably a space that from a PR perspective is like, hey, we're kind of aware of the carbon footprint of our industry. We're being a little forward thinking with how we sell clothes. It's, It's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder. Um, the, the question I have is: was the was the Plato's Closet model so successful that it's 
still profitable because right. you know at the at the end of the day this is still something that companies are doing because they think it'll be beneficial to their bottom line otherwise right. they wouldn't be doing it right so of course is 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 that type of thing so successful that it's worth copying on a larger scale now the other thing is that there's a company that a clothing company I really like called Taylor Stitch that's all you know American made it's really really high quality clothes and it's all slightly expensive they do a what they call a restitch program where you can send back clothes that you've you know worn or whatever mm. and they will kind of refurbish them and then sell them again at a discounted price but because I think it's on a smaller scale like a boutique type clothing store right. I trust it a little bit more than yeah. A big box, like, you know, a big Macy's type store. Like, do I trust them to actually, like, kind of go through the entire process to make sure that these clothes are, in the end, like, still high quality, still something that I'm going to want? Yeah. I I don't know why, but there's that intrinsic trust with the smaller brand as opposed to a Macy's where I'm like, this is going to happen on such a large scale that can I actually put any faith in this brand? Right. And and I wonder how picky they're going to be with mm-hmm. the clothes they they bring in like i love shopping at buffalo exchange and i feel like they do a pretty decent job of siphoning through the clothes that is trendy and leaving the stuff that is trendy right and getting right. rid of the stuff that maybe has pit stains or is is old ratty and and doesn't really have any aesthetic value or isn't appealing and people sure. wouldn't want to wear it is Macy's going to have the overhead and the oversight to sift through all of this used clothes? Mm-hmm. Now, I guess you would say, well, the the burden is going to fall more on the supplier, probably on ThreadUp, right. to supply them that clothes. It's not like Macy's employees are really going to have to be picking and choosing what clothes um, is going to sit on the shelves. But I don't know. It's, it's an interesting gamble. Um, I feel like it could be a positive one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just another sign that retail is changing. So, from a B two B perspective, I'm curious about how you know does this mean more industrial cleaning supplies and that sort of thing? Are they going to be doing you know mass amounts of laundry as people return clothes and and that sort of thing? Be interested to see how that goes. So, yeah, me too. That's where my head's at, buddy. Well, T, that's it for today's episode of Biz Cash. It's good to be back, man. It's good to be back. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see y'all Wednesday, 8 a.m. Central. Peace and love. <laughs>